Before we begin this morning, let us pray and ask God to help us to understand that we, our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be opened, that we really truly would receive what it is he has for us. Father, we're so grateful and thankful for this gospel, this good news. Father, we thank you for Luke and your inspiring him and what you've done in and through him. We thank you that we are not left without the truth and that Jesus is revealed greatly to us. We ask, Father, that this morning we would know you better, know ourselves better, and trust you more. For we ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, this is called the Gospel of Luke for a reason. Now, all of us are probably familiar with the word gospel, which means good news. The good news about this person of Jesus Christ. As we get into this this morning, what we're going to have is an introduction as to why this book was written. You know, from Luke's perspective, we see why, why Luke wrote the book. But from God's perspective, we see that God has purposes in this. God has purpose to do something. He's also sovereignly and providentially governed all things that come to pass in such a way that when we get this book, as this book is compiled and brought together, it is this marvelous revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're also going to see this morning in this particular text that the ways of God are unique and often bizarre. Bizarre to the point of always rocking our world. Shaking us up and making us realize that, you know what? God doesn't play safe. God, in the midst of unbelievable circumstances, will often cause glorious things to come out. And maybe your life, maybe here this morning, you're wondering, even if you look at your own life, as, as you look at the trouble that comes into your life, the difficulties, the struggles... And sometimes, it's, believe me, it's utterly confusing. You cannot make sense of it no matter how hard you try. And you stare at it wondering how anything good could possibly come out of this. What is God up to? Well, as we'll see even this morning, God is always up to something. And he's always up to our good, and he's always up to working out his purposes perfectly but he does not allow us to figure him out. His ways are beyond our ways. So as we get, begin this morning, let's look first of all at the purpose, purposes of God in inspiring this account of the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, which, what's he referring to? What are these things? The things about Jesus. He doesn't mention his name there. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. From the very beginning, it's, it's clear that it was Luke's, Luke the physician. And I don't know, he doesn't mention his name here, but we know we're in the Gospel of Luke. 
And so from the very beginning of time, it's been known that Luke actually wrote this gospel. He's the same one who wrote the book of Acts. And he was a physician, and he was also a follower of Paul. We know from the book of Acts, he was actually a co-laborer with Paul. And clearly, one who was given these accountants, as we read here, these accounts, we know where he got them from. He says, from eyewitnesses in verse 2, and ministers of the word. They delivered them to us. So he's been steeped in this. He's heard this. It's been, it's been welling up in him as it's been taught to him. He clearly has it laid out for him from the beginning as to the life and work of Jesus. So after Luke had spent many, many years listening to the apostles, having this, this account given to him and knowing all the details, he says what he's, what he's purposing to do. He's going to write this letter for someone in particular. And who is that? This guy he calls most excellent Theophilus. Who's that? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody is actually sure who this guy is. It's kind of a mystery. Who's, all he can tell is like he called him most excellent Theophilus. Well, the fact that he calls him most excellent is they, they figure he's got to be some dignitary. Because Paul in chapter 24 and 26 of Acts, he calls Festus and Felix most excellent Festus, most excellent Felix in those chapters. And it's a term of honor and respect. So clearly this Theophilus was probably some dignitary that Luke knew, and he was struggling. He was probably struggling with what to believe. Because as you can imagine, Jesus has turned up the world upside down at this point. After it's already happened, here's a guy like no one ever who's put foot on the earth, nor ever will be. Here's a man who is healing people with his very word. Here's a man who is causing people to rise from the dead. Here's a man who himself actually was dead, buried, and raised from the dead. Now, you, can, you know what happens when somebody dies, right? When somebody dies, often we tell a lot of stories about them. And sometimes, as you will notice, it's almost like someone becomes a hero when they die. Like, they become twice as good as they really were. And so after a while, if they're great people, they die, and all the stories get told about them. After a while, you start to wonder about those stories. You know, is this some fancy fabrication? Are people kind of ad- ad-libbing and adding their own little spin? Especially, you know, you get good storytellers. And what's the, what's the mark of a good storyteller? Well, they exaggerate a little bit. They help the story out. You know, you gotta, you got to pump it up, and it gives it lots of juice. And so after a while, it says all these things are circulating. And there's, there's many who are speaking about him, and there's much said about him. And as you could imagine in that environment, what would that do to your faith? it would cause you to maybe start wondering, what is true of all this? There, at the time, we know there were several theories of the resurrection. And so they're wondering, who is this Jesus and what can I trust? So in the purposes of God, what does he do? He starts stirring the heart of Luke. And God chooses Luke and works in the heart of Luke. And Luke is a man who's observed, who's listened, who's personal friends with the apostles, and he must be a guy who's concerned with details. Because after hearing all this, he's convinced he needs to write to this most excellent Theophilus. And he says the reason why, that you may have certainty 
obviously Theophilus must also trust Luke. So he knows if I write to him, he's probably going to take confidence in this and know that hey, I'm not trying to make everything up, I'm not trying to fabricate anything. This is actually how it was revealed to me. And I've, I've, the actual eyewitnesses, the people who've seen, heard, touched, walked with him, I've lived among them, and this is from them. So you can trust this, that it's from him. And so here we have Luke, not knowing it at all. He, here's a man steeped in the gospel, and God was working. The purposes of God were from the very beginning to use Luke, but Luke didn't know it. Luke didn't understand that. Here Luke is just going about his business, just living his life. He's connected through... The, through God's plan and purposes with these apostles. And here he is learning, and, and he's a particular kind of a guy he's, who's concerned about details. And he's steeping himself in this, and now at the point where God, God stirs his heart. So Luke, it says here that Luke figured that he would do this, right? But we know all Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration, that the Spirit of God was moving in the heart of Luke, stirring his heart. Because God had purpose to give an orderly account. And what's unique about Luke is this, is that he says, he calls it an orderly account. So it tells us something about Luke, but the gospel of Luke. And realizing that Luke in particular is, is concerned to give an orderly account. An unfolding of the life of Jesus. It happened, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. That's his primary concern, his purpose. And why that's important is when you approach this book, you realize it's not like the other Gospels. Matthew, for example, what was his purpose? Matthew writes this Gospel because he's seeking to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So he has a different purpose, a different perspective. And so the story's not told in the exact same way. John, on the other hand, he states his purpose as he's seeking to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's seeking to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, his primary purpose. That's what he's out to do. He's not trying to give an orderly account. And so you'll find that the orders don't match up. I don't know if you've ever did this before, but have you ever taken the four Gospels? And if you've read them or you've placed them on top of one another, you say, wait a second, these things don't line up. The accounts don't happen in the same order. You know why? Totally different purposes. Completely different perspectives. God was inspiring these men to almost take, and let's look at the life of Jesus from this angle, or from this angle, from this angle. For a different purpose, you, you approach the subject differently. So if your purpose is to give an orderly account, it's going to be more systematic. This is what happened, this is what happened, and this is what happened. If your purpose is just simply to reveal that Jesus was the Son of God, it doesn't, that stuff doesn't matter. You're just going to put the stuff together and reveal that. Or just like Matthew, if his purpose is to show that Jesus is the true king of Israel, the Messiah, well then, that's going to drive how you put it together. But behind all this, who's at work? God is at work. God is at work in individuals, from their perspective, working and moving and ordaining that they be the ones that write these accounts. Did these individuals know it? No. They don't, it's not like, sometimes we think of inspiration like this. Oh, I'm overtaken. My, your pen starts writing. It's like you don't even know what's coming out. It's just like that's, is that what inspiration is? No, it's not. 
God is working. Even in your life right now, God has purposes. God works in hearts. God works invisibly in our lives and the people's lives around us. Even the heart of the king, it says in Proverbs, is in the hand of the Lord to turn it like rivers of water wherever he wishes. But that king doesn't know it. These people didn't know it. Luke doesn't even know it, yet God is at work. You know what's amazing? Out of all these accounts out there, God raises up these people to to give us these faithful accounts. And here today, because of the purposes of God, after all that has gone before, we're stripped down to these four. We're we're blessed because of the purposes of God today, some 2,000 plus years after Luke. And why? Because God purposed for these guys to raise up. And you know, where's all that other stuff? Like debris or like chaff, the wind blows it away. We don't have a bunch of various accounts, do we? History itself, God, by working through history, has refined it. And here we have the Gospel of Luke, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. God is at work, and yet even at the very beginning, he works like he works. And how is that? Invisibly. He doesn't say, here I am, Luke, possessed by the Spirit, compelled, and I cannot do otherwise. My hand is moving, and I do not understand why. That's not what he says. But we have this account that has stood the test of times, approved by the apostles, approved by the church throughout history. And here it is, a worthy account that some 2,000 plus years later, we are reading and studying the actual words of documents written down then, preserved like no other book in history. And why? Because God purposed. And it'll be around for another 4,000 if God purposes. And we can count on it. There's something else I want us to see here as well. And it's connected to the God purposing. Is this, that the providence of God is seen here in particulars. He works, the providence of God works in, in characters, and he works in the context and setting by which Jesus shows up on the scene. It's not just about Jesus, there's other characters that set the stage, and Jesus moves on to the scene, and this is what we see starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, he starts off. Isn't that common when you're starting a story of something? You, what do you do when you start a story? You start off with a context. Where am I? Where am I at? Who's, who's, who are the people? Who are the main characters? You've got to set the stage, and this is what he does. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, or Abiah, which is how you pronounce it. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What's, what's he do? Right out of the gate, he introduces some characters and a location, gives us a setting. He says, the days of Herod the king of Judea, where now we know we're in Judea. And then he goes on to talk about these, this priest, Zechariah, and his wife. And in this particular case, these names are very important. Because it's the beginnings of the greatest events that have ever happened on the earth or ever will. So take note. Who are these people? It's important for us to know. The people ruling are important. This Herod is Herod the Great. 
and most history books will talk about Herod the Great. Herod the Great. Who is this Herod the Great? Well, this Herod the Great was only great in his own mind. He was great in exploits. He was great in power, but he was not great in any good sense of the word. He was evil. He was a sinister evil. He was an ambitious man who desired power. This was the man who murdered large portions of his family because he felt like they were too ambitious for power. He was so lustful of power, so careful to preserve it, that if he felt anybody encroached on that, that meant your life, dead. It didn't matter if you were his wife. It didn't matter if you were his son, dead. This is the man he was. Not only that, we had read this morning, and if you can recall, something about this man, Herod, in Matthew chapter 2. Herod, this is the man who heard that a king was born. A king was born in Israel. He gets word of this. You know why? His Herod was actually an Edomite, and he was a follower of Judaism. And he was taught by Pharisees. He's, he's actually familiar. When he heard that, he knew. And he goes to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, where was the... Where was the Messiah to be born? He knew, knew they would know, and they turn open to the scriptures, and they reveal to him that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, okay. So he sends people to Bethlehem because you know what he plans on doing? Murdering this child. And why? Well, he's a potential king. He's a potential threat to this guy's throne. What do you do with that? You kill it. This, he was an evil, evil man. God speaks through an angel to, the, to his, uh, Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, to flee to Egypt. So they flee to Egypt. And now he's ripped off because he goes to find him and he realizes he's been tricked. And he's a clever man himself. And so he goes and he, he finds out that they're, that they're not where he thought they would be. And so what does he do? He has all the children, two years and under, in Bethlehem and the region surrounding, killed, murdered. One bad dude, this guy. An evil man. And it's in these days, these evil, wicked days, here's the tyrant who's ruling at this time. You know what's even more amazing? Is God foretold, providentially, he was the man who would be there at this time. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 through 25 states this about a king, a particular king that would be ruling uh, during the days of the prince of princes. This is what it says. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Thus the naming of himself, Herod the Great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Who's that? Jesus. And he shall be broken, but not by human hand. You know what's astounding about that? Isn't it? The details are so accurate in the life of Herod the Great, but also how he died. Nobody killed him. 
he died from the most excruciating illness there could have been. They're not even exactly sure what it was. What it was. But it, he, he, in moaning and groaning and in excruciating pain, he ended up dying. Not by the hands of man, as it says here. By no human hand. But God put him to death. This man is on the scene, and God providentially had worked it so that this is exactly to fulfill his word, he would be on the scene. And in deep contrast to that, who, who are the characters put alongside of him? In these days of this king, there was a priest, a priest, and his name was Zechariah, and his wife was Elizabeth. And the reason he mentions them is because their child would be the one promised by God to prepare the way for Messiah. So he's a forebearer. Their lineage is also mentioned here. It says he's, what does it say here? Zechariah is a priest, right? A priest of the division of Abiah, and his wife was from the daughters of Aaron. Why does it mention his lineage like that? Well, It's setting it up. Here is a son to be born from these two, miraculously. And he's coming from parents who are legitimate. Obviously, the the wife is is from the lineage of Aaron, which is the the tribe of uh, the Levites and the priests. And so is the husband, a pure lineage. We have this one born, John. We call him John the Baptist because he baptized everybody. And do you know why he baptized everybody? He's a priest. Do you know what a priest does? A priest washes and cleanses everything and anything that before it ever is to enter into God's presence. If someone was to draw near to God, even the animal, it must be washed with water and it must be cleansed by blood. All the utensils used, there was a basin of water that the priest had to continually wash their hands. The utensils needed to be washed. Even the lamb, and that was to be slaughtered, was to be washed. And in the Old Covenant, when it's translated into the Septuagint, it's called baptisms. These were baptisms because the part of the priest's job was to wash the people and the things to prepare them to enter the presence of God. Now here's the situation. John the Baptist is this priest, and he's calling, he's preparing the way and calling the people to repentance. And what does he do? He washes them. Why? Because they weren't going to meet God. God was coming to meet them. He prepares them for God to show up, and they they need to be washed from their sins. This is significant. This is why we know for certainty that John himself was a priest. So these are the main characters, and God providentially set this whole thing up with these parents in this scenario, and it's connected to what I lastly want to say, and I think has the most application for our own lives, is that not only do we see the purposes of God here and the providence of God working out the details and the people, but we see this mysterious way of God that always has a way of messing with our worlds, the way of God, the way of God that just turns us upside down. Look at verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. These aren't just any old particular details that reveal the characters. 
these are particular people and particular details that reveal and set the stage for the life of Jesus. Yet these particular people, they don't even know how they fit into the story. They don't know what's going on. But you know what? Before we understand fully, before we understand exactly what it is, why these these particular details are so important, as I was going through this, you realize that there are some big questions that arise. I don't know if you notice when you, you see this, you think, wow, this is very interesting. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Right away, you know, the smart people in the back raise his hand and say, wait a second, wait a second, That's a, doesn't that seem strange? How is it that the, these both right, how can somebody be righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? Wait a second, I've read my Bible. It's like, there's no one righteous, no, not one. No one who walks in the commandments of the Lord. What is he talking about here? What is going on? Well, to give a thorough explanation of this would take a sermon series because this has, it's that loaded in our particular day and age to, because so often you hear that, you know, no one is righteous before God. It's impossible. And secondly, is, can anybody walk blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? Seriously? I thought the whole, haven't you read Paul? I thought he was a co-laborer with Paul. Does he understand that, you know, the law, his purpose of the law was to condemn, was to show them that, you know, that they're unrighteous. Show you that, you know, as, as the commandment comes, thou shalt not covet. What do I find but covetousness swelling up in my, in my heart? Romans 7, right? And so we have doctrine that seems to conflict with what's being said here. So I just want to quickly, as fast as I can, give an explanation as to why it's saying what it's saying. And there are those, first of all, that we can talk about, and often the Bible, I don't know if you've ever looked at the Psalms, they talk about people being righteous. These are a righteous man, and they're righteous, and this righteous. And, and the thing is, they weren't just talking about their imputed righteousness, the righteousness they obtained through the shedding of blood of Christ, that they become righteous from God, forgiven. There's actually, they do and act righteously. There's a righteousness that we talk about, that's talked about in scriptures that has to do with men's actions. They do what is right and good. So they're good folks who do what is right and good, and you, you couldn't, a person on the outside could not condemn them for anything. So they could bring you into court and try to bring a charge against you, and they would find that there's not a charge they could bring against you because you haven't done anything wrong. In fact, what they find is that you do what is right and good. They're good folks. In fact, that kind of, as far as that kind of righteousness goes, many of you sitting here this morning would be considered righteous. You're righteous people. Why? Well, you're blameless. I can't find things to blame you for. I couldn't bring a charge against you and, and make it stick in the court of law. But in this particular case, notice the distinction. They're righteous before God. That's a whole different category. Here's the one who knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's the one who says, sure, you might not be able to be condemned before men, but you're greasy before me. Badly. You are unrighteous because I know the thoughts and intentions of your heart continually. And as soon as we know that someone can see our thoughts and someone knows it goes on in our hearts, we all of a sudden go, oh, oh, a whole new level of guilt. So people might not be able to put anything on you, but God sure could. 
And this is why it's interesting that he says this. But just quickly, I think the way to understand this is twofold. First of all, understand that they are righteous before God in this sense. In the sense that they are those made right by God, before God, by the grace of God. They are those whom God has made righteous, therefore the righteous by God. That part's the easier to understand, and we can explain that. The second part's not as easy. We're walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I think the only way to take this, the only way to understand this, and sure there's lots to be explained about the perspectives of the law, but in the fullness of the law, the law not only, as I've mentioned this before, not only is there the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments isn't all the law and all the statutes. It includes the washings. It includes the sacrificial system. It includes the book of Leviticus. The law, if you look from beginning to end, it's a large, it's the Torah. It's a large section. And it includes the admittance that you are a sinner, and if you are going to approach God, you must be washed and cleansed through the shedding of blood. Zechariah, as a priest, of course would know this. He has to perform this constantly. He himself has to wash. He himself must offer a sacrifice on his behalf before he can approach God. Zechariah must confess that he has sinned before God, and the only way that he can have atonement is by the shedding of blood that he offers on the altar to God. The law in its full system declares that you are a sinner, and the only way to be made righteous is through the shedded shedded blood of an innocent lamb. That's part of the law. So even though they seek to uphold the law and they sin and they, and they approach God appropriately, they're understanding you can obey the law in those terms, in that sense, blamelessly. However, you cannot, this, this is an impossibility. If you talk like Paul and you reference the law in terms of the Ten Commandments, and you think if you just say that in regard to those Ten Commandments, I keep the law blamelessly, that's not possible. I think that's also why he says the commandments and statutes of the law. Now, that's the short answer, because there's lots more to be said about it. But I think that's why they can say this, speak like this, is because they're referencing the whole law with the commandments and statutes of of the law, as opposed to just the commandments. So in saying that, I want us to know something, see something here, that there is a certain contrast going on. We have Herod, the evil and wicked, and then we've got Zechariah and Elizabeth, the righteous and the good, contrasted with one another. And yet, you know what's interesting? The, who has the power? Who has the glory? Who has all, all this, uh, these blessings, so to speak, and the children and all that? It seems to be Herod. Verse 7, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. Okay, that might not mean much to us today. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of women today who think barrenness is great. But back in that day, that was a curse from God. These people wanted to have children so that they could pass on, you know, from generation to generation, large families, the family name, and keep the inheritance. But these people feel like they're cursed. But this isn't the first time this crazy scenario shows up, is it? They had no child. But notice something else. It's not just had no child, because Elizabeth Barron, and both were advanced in years. You know what that means? Old. 
which when translated means not able to have children. That, that time is gone. Righteous people, barren lady, advancing years. You're starting to think maybe let's go back in Scripture. Are, are people's names popping up? Well, this is, this is a theme. We start, we have Abraham and Sarah, right? We have Jacob and Rachel. We have Hannah and Elkanah, however you say his name. We have several people in the scriptures that basically follow a similar theme, the barren woman theme. But from this barren woman becomes, comes a promised child. And from this promised child comes the Messiah. And we, here we have a similar situation of God working in crazy ways. And the reason I call this crazy ways, because God just doesn't like to have a woman, young, barren, hasn't had children for a couple years. Oh, no, we're getting nervous. We can't have kids. No, God goes beyond that. Righteous, good folks, you know, folks that you think, you know, if you're going to pick people, who's God going to bless? Well, it's going to be these folks. Who's he going to curse? It's going to be these folks. And yet he goes like this. Believe me, these folks have got to be scratching their heads. The ways of God are not our ways. That doesn't make sense to me. And these, these folks who go to bed at night praying to God, struggling, hurting. God, where are you? Why is it like you've cursed us? Have we done something wrong? <laughs> you know, we're, we're making all the logical connections. And, the, the, and the, the turmoil and the work and the labor and the, and, the, and the ridicule. You realize that a barren woman in these days would face ridicule. The other women would laugh at them, call them names. And they would talk to them as if they were cursed. God has cursed you. Where is your God now? Well, what do they say in retort? I don't know. I don't know. And yet, you know what? The overarching testimony of Scripture is this is actually the way God likes to work. He takes his people, puts them in circumstances which they can't get or understand, and actually take them to the point of impossibility. It's not, it gets beyond of being, um, okay, this is crazy. It's like, okay, I can't even think that anymore. It's not even worth thinking about. It's just done. There's just no possibility. It's over. And they got to the point where they've almost lost hope. Almost lost hope. And you know what? This is exactly where God wants to have them. Because when it seems nice and impossible, God shows up. God shows up. This is how it is with us as well. We're in an impossible situation. Our backs are up against the wall. There's nothing else we can do. So we cry out to God in utter desperation and wonder, how is it that he is not fully against us? Do you have any reason why you could say he's not against us? In fact, I think he hates us. Do you ever find yourself there? Have you ever found yourself so backed up against the wall in a situation that's so overwhelming? And, and it, you can't do the math. It doesn't make sense. 
according to your understanding, what you've, you've calculated out and say, in fact, it's impossible. It's impossible. So what is the point? God, where are you? Why are you so quiet? But you know what? We're failing to understand how God works. How does God work? God works in the midst of the impossible, always. You don't need to know or understand how God will work. You just need to know and understand that God will work. Because I guarantee you, if you think you have him figured out, (laughs) sorry, he's going to do something that messes with your head. Because our tendency is always try to figure it out, isn't it? Let's, let's figure this out. Let's figure this out. Let's figure this out. Because thinking that God's going to, he's going to, you know, he's going to tell our story in one straight line here. No, he's not. He's going to mess with you. Because that's the way God works. God will provide. God will show up. God will deliver. And when he does, and how he does, guess what? Will surprise you. It will surprise you. And why will this happen? Because this is the way of God. This is how he treats us. This is how he deals with his people. He's strengthening and working our faith. When he has our faith right to the point of a thread, it's about ready to snap. And we're like, we don't know if we can even hold on to this God anymore. It's there that we find that he meets us. And then our our faith is strengthened and grows. God has purposed in your life to work everything out for good. And he providentially works all the details, all the people, all the character, everything is providentially worked out in your life. And why will this happen? And why will, it, why will trouble come into your life in the midst of all the details of God working? Because this is the way of God. God is at concern to strengthen and grow your faith and trust in him. God will put you in an impossible situation. And then when you think you're taking your last breath and you cry out, boom, he delivers. I love the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I'm going to finish with this really quick. Because by the time Abraham is old and advanced in years, God throws the final test at him. And it's a whopper. But you know what? Abraham could not have passed that test back in the early days. But God says, Abraham, go and sacrifice your son, your one and only son, Isaac, to me. What? What are you doing? He's a son of promise. He's the one you gave me in my old age. My, forget that. He's the one who, he already has been born, resurrected out of death. Sarah's womb was dead. He, they should not have children, but God brought Isaac, the son of promise. And now you tell me to go sacrifice him? He would have, years earlier, he would have made up some excuse and probably would have figured God was doing something, messing with him somehow, and, and probably botched the whole thing up. But he goes and cuts the wood, he takes his servants, and he heads out three days' journey. And when he could see the mountain, he says to his servants, wait here, the son and I are going to go off to worship, and we'll come back to you soon. 
Now, I don't know if he's just saying that or if he, he believes somehow that's actually what's going to happen. We don't know exactly, but the fact that him and I are both going to come back to you soon, it, perhaps, he, perhaps he just said it, believing that somehow, I don't even know how, this is crazy, but we'll come back to you soon. And then as they get there, his son says to him, Isaac says, Father, I see that you have the fire and the wood, but you don't have the sacrifice. Well, there's a gulper moment. But what does he say? And what he says is, this is where, you know, Abraham doesn't know. He doesn't know how at all. Right now the math isn't working. And he just says, son, God will provide the sacrifice. I know he didn't know. (laughs) But he knew. He just knew that God would. He didn't know how. He just knew that somehow, I don't know how this is all going to work out, Isaac, but God will provide the sacrifice. And, you know, it would, would have been nice. He gets up there and goes, whew, there it is. Ram caught in the thicket. I knew. I told you, Isaac. No, it's like it, it gets worse than that. He's got Isaac down on the altar. Everything ready. And God just doesn't even do it then. No, Abraham, not even when the knife was here. But as as he's about ready to start the downward thrust, God says, stop. Now I know. Now I know. And then he sees the ram in the thicket. God would provide. God And Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham knowing that God could even raise my son from the dead. I don't know, but he could. And often, that's where our, we find ourselves. It, or in those moments when it doesn't make sense. But God has purposed. And God has providentially worked. And you've got to understand, His ways are crazy sometimes. But it's just the way He sets up the story. As he did here in Luke. That's how he sets up the story. Because he's going to show up. And he's going to deliver. And he's going to provide. And he's going to keep his promises. God shows up in a big way. Always. Always. And in our lives, no matter where we find ourselves. End of your rope. I guarantee you. I don't know when and I don't know how. And nobody can tell you. But God will show up. Just when you think nothing but hell could break loose, heaven breaks forward. That's our God. Trust Him. Amen. Father, we thank You so much that you are faithful and that you're good and that you have purposed from the foundation of the earth to work everything out for good. You've promised. And you providentially govern all the details in our lives and the people and the characters and everything to work that out. Yet, yet, your ways are not our ways. Your ways are unique and strange and past finding out. And we cannot know how, but we can know that you will. And may that be sufficient for all of us. Strengthen our faith. 
And no matter where we find ourselves, may we all be convinced that I don't know how, but I know that he will. Amen.